All right, Hebrews chapter 7, verse 11. I'll be right back after you chat, Slick. You're good, buddy. All right, let's just read this whole chapter. I'd be happy to read it, and then uh, we'll break it down, starting at verse 11. It says, uh, starting in verse 1, This Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met um, Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, um, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. We talked about that last week. And then he's also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was, to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils? And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers. Even though these also are descended from Abraham, but this man who doesn't have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek? rather than one named after the order of Aaron. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord Jesus, he was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. And that's important to highlight in your Bible, circle that. Uh, this becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, we're talking about Jesus here, uh, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and its uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect, but on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one, referring to Jesus, was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, one who is holy, innocent, unstained, and separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, 
first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all, when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which refers back to the promise, that which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Wow. Got a lot of ground to cover, fellas. Not going to lie. So let's back it up to verse 11. And then you probably have questions, connections in your mind you're making. And so um, let's just look at verse 11 uh, in connection to what was said about uh, Levi in the loins of Abraham. Uh, coming out to meet Melchizedek after the battle, really a war in some sense. And Abraham received victory um, by the grace of God over those several kings that had taken Lot. We talked about that last week. And uh, Levi, in some sense, is actually, it's, it's as if that Levi is paying tithes through Abraham to Melchizedek. And we ended there, and now we get to verse 11 where it continues that idea of comparing um, two parties. Now, if perfection had been attainable, and what perfection we are referring to, um, I think we will see as we read the text. But if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, and then in parentheses, depending on your translation, it'll say, for under it the people receive the law. If, if that were the case, and that's what we needed, then what further need would there have been for another priest to arise in the likeness or after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron, who descends from, the, from Levi? So let's just look at verse 11 and 12. When there's a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily, like um, what is required is that a change in the law takes place as well. And what kind of change in the law we're referring to and what kind of perfection we're looking at in verse 11. Hopefully that will become clearer as we read this, um, this passage as one unit in connection with the rest. So any questions just about verse 11 and 12 or um, things that kind of pique your interest or connections to other scriptures or just things that you notice? Put your hands up in the chat. If you're new here, welcome, welcome. Um, just put your hand up in the embedded chat. There's a little hand emoji you can type in or say raise hand, and that will indicate to us that you have something to share or something to comment on. So let's hear what you guys have to say. Hmm. Hmm. Maybe to stimulate conversation, we can remember what has already been said in the beginning of chapter 11, or chapter 7, rather. Just that Melchizedek is uh, being compared in some sense, or rather Jesus is being compared to Melchizedek. And then the ver first 10 verses are talking about why Melchizedek is uh, so great. He seems to have no genealogy we're aware of without father or mother. Some take that literally. Others take that like when it comes to us knowing his heritage. We just don't know. Um, he has, he continues a priest forever. In what way? I couldn't tell you. Um, but Ken, you got something? Yes. Thank you for saving well, me. Well, <laughs> please forgive the rabbit hole if it be a rabbit hole. But for some reason, um, the part that was brought up to me was what the part in parentheses that 
For under it, the people received the law. So when the people received the law, there was a period of time that they actually couldn't even enact parts of the law when they received it at Mount Sinai because they still had time to go before they actually got to where they can actually plant and, and be able to do the offerings, the feast and everything that they were required to do. So they still had a time of going through the wilderness. We tend to do this too. We need a time of going through the wilderness to continue relying on God. We receive the truth. The truth brings us understanding because of the Father. And because of that, we come to faith. We believe it's true. We receive his law to love. But we still need to rely on God to go through this, through a time period. And so that's that's part one, that enjoy the time that you have going through the wilderness. It's so imperative to rely on God on everything. And now to the part of Melchizedek. Last week I mentioned a little bit about showing authority. Abraham was showing authority by giving a tithe. And so we know that through Jesus, Jesus came through this lineage. He is absolutely part of the vine, not just part of the vine, but he becomes the true vine because he's the first fruit. He is the one who became the first creation that we are to be like him, now born in spirit. And so when we tie this back to Melchizedek, he was at a time when Jerusalem itself was called Salem. And so the nature of it had changed, that it had to be called something else. And so he came in the order of Melchizedek. And because of that, to me, this takes me to Isaiah 5, that the vineyard that was placed on a fertile hill. And so when we see authority, the owner, he owns the land. And now what do you put inside of the land, inside of the fertile hill, but the true vine? And so you see the mirroring of what it is to be the land married to the owner. And so in Isaiah 5, this takes us into Luke as well into the barren fig tree. So the owner, he had a vineyard that had a barren fig tree. And the keeper, who is related to Jesus, says, sir, please forgive it. He's showing sir as an authority, speaking to the father. Father, forgive it. Please let it be is actually some of the translations of what it says. But as a sign of forgiveness. And so Jesus is saying forgiveness, it's I'm taking care of this. I am going to give it another season to grow. And so this can be a relationship between what we see from the past of a land and a vineyard to Jesus being the first fruit. And he comes to do the Father's will. And so it is his Father's kingdom that the Father gives to him. He gives it all to him. And so from this, we now see also, which I believe it is Isaiah uh, 62.4, that it talks about Hezbollah, the land he shall marry. And so holy Jerusalem being on Mount Zion, and that will be his kingdom. So just throwing a little bit of meat out there. Drawing a lot of connections to... Yeah, the Old Testament narrative, and the first fruits, and that's a good point. That um, 
when you think about what it was that Israel was told to do before they entered into the promised land, they were given guidelines, not just on how to go in, but on how to stay there. And so it was up to their own decision to obey God and his laws or not that would make or break their stay in the promised land. So you're right, there are some things that God said, when you get into the promised land, do X, Y, and Z, uh, that couldn't otherwise be done until that actual promise was realized. And um, I think there is some um, absolute connection to the to the fact that we're looking at Jesus as the great high priest. And now that he's gone in, essentially, in our place as our representative before the Father, now we can do certain things per our connection to him who realized the promises. And this all goes back to oath. This all goes back to what God has said to um, Abraham. This all goes back to what it is that God verified by his own name and character and, and power, which is um, the promises given to Abraham and the, patri- and the patriarchs and, and the true seed. Um, and so what's interesting is that verse 11 brings in this. Um, it's almost like now, now that I've introduced Melchizedek and how Jesus is similar to Melchizedek, and now that I've explained why Melchizedek seems to be different than your typical high priest. Here's the conclusion we can draw. And then he's going to start talking about the Levitical priesthood. It's as if Melchizedek becomes a platform for talking about the Levitical priesthood and the law as a whole. And that's interesting just to think about. He's segueing into that by using Melchizedek uh, as, um, as, I guess, the way into conversation about what do we how do we look at Levitical priesthood now? How do we look at law? How do we make sense of Jesus if he's not descending from the tribe of Levi in that official capacity and he doesn't descend from Aaron? How do we make sense of that? And so you should have the categories in place, which says, well, Melchizedek was uh, seemed to be this amazing high priest king um, in the service of God, receiving tithes from Abraham. He didn't descend from Levi. So there must be a category in God's mind, which is, uh, what law institutes or what Mosaic law appoints in human weakness is inferior to what God's oath or word um, institutes, you know, by promise, which ends up being Jesus. So there are a few comparisons being drawn, and I want to get lost in the weeds, but I will get to um, Jack. 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 Jack Frost. You know... I saw something, or I mean, in my head, as soon as uh, Ken was talking, and then as you were talking, Jason, and um, I realized what had been said in that Hebrew 7, that the new law, or the, the new thing was bringing, brought in, right? So God was working the new thing in from back then in uh, chapter 15, or is it chapter 22 in Genesis, where Melchizedek is blessing Abraham, like you said, right? For that very specific reason. Because the seed would come through Abraham. So Abraham had to be blessed as well as that seed that was yet to come from the land of Salem from Jerusalem itself. So, 
I don't know why I got this, but God was sanctifying it from that moment on, from that blessing when Abraham was blessed by Melchizedek, from the royal priesthood itself, that Jesus would be a part of one day. And the land as well. Wow. I don't know why I got that. All like that. All at once in my head as y'all were talking. I, I've been looking into Melchizedek for quite a while. And I was like, what role did he actually play? Why did Melchizedek receive a tenth from, um, from Abraham? What was the whole thing there? What was the purpose? What was everything? And um, and then I realized, because now it's the royal priesthood, the land, the seed that was receiving the blessing at that time as well. Not just Abraham, but the descendants of Abraham all received that blessing down that line. When God did that, the new royal priesthood had begun right there and then, and I hadn't seen it before until this very moment. Oh, deep study. I'm sorry. That was just a brain fart that I got. And Yeah, so just for everyone that's, you know, uh, tracking with what you're saying, you're saying there's a connection between uh, God's promise to Abraham, the land, this royal priesthood, and the tithes that were paid through Abraham to Melchizedek. And all of that seems to uh, point to Jesus who will come down the line later in history to um, be, what would you call that, the the realized promise of all those things? So yes. along the way you see like God working behind the scenes in these very odd ways which seem they don't they don't contradict the narrative they just seem oddly placed and it's as if um i don't know this might be a terrible analogy but this is kind of where my mind goes it says it's kind of like if we we picture time traveling where like people with futuristic technology come back to the past and it seems out of place to have that futuristic technology in this time but you know the what they're what they would probably say is like no eventually we're going to get there i'm just letting you know like giving you like a taste of what you can expect in the future there seems to be like those moments along the biblical narrative where god is working the, we have these oddly placed uh, encounters with right melchizedek and abraham which seem to be um like ahead of its time you might say where it's like is god doing what we, nah he didn't do it that was just a taste of what God actually intended to be uh, intended to do with um, Abraham and it's the royal priesthood in the likeness of Melchizedek, which of course in Abraham's from his vantage point in human history, you wouldn't catch that. But in hindsight, we look back and go, wow, God was giving little indications of what he was going to do in the future. A little taste foreshadows of what Jesus and his plan to bring Jesus into the world was always going to be doing. And so the perfection of verse 11, um, I guess I have a question for you guys. Just think about it. Um, what kind of perfection do you think he's speaking of? Moral perfection? Ritual perfection? Like realizing the promise kind of perfection? Because 
if you just read the first 10 verses of Hebrews 7, um, I don't necessarily see any any conversation about said perfection. So it seems like an out-of-place idea, uh, and maybe he's he's bringing in an idea that he put on pause in earlier chapters, um, but I don't remember necessarily any touching on said perfection and what are we talking about. Um, so maybe go through, I don't know, the rest, what we've read so far. <clears throat> See if you uh, recognize any, I guess, helpful hints to that. Joshua? You don't have to answer, um, but you had your hand up, so go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say that a lot of times when that word is used, it also means completion. I don't, I don't know if that's the case in this context or not, but yeah, that's all. No, that's good um, because we don't necessarily have to look for that word itself. There might be some very synonymous ideas. Um, the only time perfection, that actual English rendering itself, is used is in right here, verse 11. Um, I'm just searching for the word perfect in Hebrews, just doing a little English search because that's helpful. Oh, Hebrews 5.9. It says that he was made perfect and became the source of eternal salvation. And that's speaking to Jesus uh, being made perfect. Uh, back in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10, it says, It was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Um, see if the word perfected is used. Hebrews ten fourteen, He's perfected yeah. time, those who are being sanctified. Yeah, the idea of completion seems to be... Um, the most consistent usage of that um, of that term, at least here in Hebrews, and so it might be helpful just to think in in those categories. Yeah, thank you for bringing that up. That's super helpful. I wasn't even thinking about that. Christy, go ahead. Are you there, Christy? Might have to help her unmute. Go, Christy. Go, Christy. If your mic is not working, Christy, um, jump out of the call and then come right back in. Usually that fixes the problem. So just end the call, hit that red button, and then jump right back in, and it might fix it. I have a hunch it will. If you can hear me. Maybe try typing in the chat, Jason. She doesn't respond. Hmm. My chat is not working. DJ, can you do that? For some reason, my chat is frozen. Her username, I'll ping her. Christy. C-H-R-I-S. Like Christ with a Y. Yeah, my chat is frozen. Well, let me type. Hey, there was an update the other day. Let it go. Oh, yeah. 
I noticed that too. I jumped on and I was like, what is this new world? I don't like it. Warn me. Well, while Christy's getting that figured out, um, hopefully gets figured out. Um, verse 11, notice like the, the pause in the whole idea that perfection, if it had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, then why look for someone outside of Levi? Right after that, he puts a pause on that and he goes, well, for under it, the people received the law. So there's an obvious uh, connection for the author between the actual establishment of the high priesthood descending from Aaron and the law that is given and received or given through Moses and received by the people. And then that relates to the fact that perfection cannot be attained through those means. Because obviously, if the law was sufficient to appoint a high priest that could deal with our real issue, then we wouldn't need Jesus to have arisen the way he did in the likeness of Melchizedek. And this is not at all to minimize the law or the, um, the, the way that God used the Levitical priesthood and those high priests that preceded Jesus. This is to say, no, just when we're comparing the two, one is better than the other. Um, that being Jesus, because the kind of perfection we need. And I think, Joshua, you're onto something. Um, there's going to be somewhere else in Hebrews where it's going to talk about if, um, if bulls and goats were able to cleanse your conscience from sin, um, then you wouldn't need the shed blood of Jesus. So there's this constant comparison between what it is that Christ offers versus the types and shadows seen in the earlier sacrificial system prescribed by the Mosaic law. Um, and I think that's important. He's drawing so many comparisons between Jesus, not at all putting them at odds, but to say one had a different role than the other. Jesus is the one who is, um, was always um, God's plan A you might say, for humanity. But along the way, <clears throat> God puts in place the law. God gives the high priesthood through Levi and Aaron. God gives the tabernacle and temple, which are supposed to be viewed not as the ideal, the ultimate ideal, but as what Jesus would come to um, fully and substantially complete, bring to completion. So I think, Joshua, the way you said perfection relates to completion, that is very helpful in understanding what Christ has done. Um, there's a completion element to his work as it relates to the law and bringing the Levitical priesthood, um, I, I guess the helpful word would be to its termination in terms of not being able to perfect humanity. And Jesus goes, oh, you guys could only go so far, so let me pick up the pieces and take it from here. It's a relay race. And uh, the baton's been passed to Jesus who did who essentially finished the race and then passes the baton back to us. And he goes, it, it's done. Now just keep running from a place of victory. So Joshua, go ahead. Joshua, are you there? I apologize. I thought I was unmuted already. Um, I was saying, I think what you're saying about um, 
the the sacrifices not being able to uh cleanse the conscience that's that's the main thing is that i think it's being made clean that that perfection is um what he came to restore us to you know and the power of sins and the law right and it's it's guilt and shame that keeps us from being able to serve God with a clean conscience and you know trying to think of the best way to word this you can't that stain that sin leaves on a person's conscience it affects the way they act on both it can do it on a conscious level and it can do it on a subconscious level as well it it makes people start projecting things on other people that they see in themselves and like there's there's all these different things that it can do and when we receive that forgiveness like completely made clean it allows us to to serve him and yeah that's where the freedom comes in and we know that think about in the old testament with the objects in the temple that they would use um the things had to be cleaned and set apart the priests had to be sanctified um and nothing could be used until it was sanctified and one of the other i i put it in the chat but one of the other meanings of that word is consecrated that that word perfect i was looking it up again and it uh consecrated was one of them so i think that's in there we complete too but yeah my my focus is sort of more on that now but completion also yeah i'm opening up a handy dandy logos and the hebrew parallel um to this greek word can mean and there the semantic range is helpful for us to understand meaning the word in different contexts can mean these different things but complete unscathed intact blameless without fault free of blemish or stain it's impeccable and then the other words that it gets rendered is uh honest devout honesty integrity and completeness so for instance Deuteronomy 32:4 the rock, his work is perfect, and all his ways are just. He's a faithful God, and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. And it actually is um, very strongly related to, like you said, the act of sanctifying and sanctification itself, whether that be utensils, vessels, people, situations, places. Um, and so think that when it says perfection he he is talking about like um us being set apart to god in that blameless condition uh, without stain without blemish blemish without you know spot to be actually complete and blameless first jesus had to be perfected not in terms not morally but i guess um if you want to think of it in levitical terms ritually to go undergo the necessary process to become our salvation through the resurrection and ascension. And then that perfection that comes through him, the author of Hebrews is saying, 
the Levitical priesthood prescribed by the law could not do that. Because look, um, verse 13, and actually it's, it's worth noting in verse 12, there's a change in the priesthood, mainly because one is superior and takes us farther than the other, that being Jesus and his, his priesthood. Um, and he talks about how this priest, Jesus, this high priest, how does he become a high priest on the basis of his indestructible life? Verse 16. So with that in mind, verse 12 says, because of that change in priesthood, there is necessarily, like attached to that, it is required that there be a change in the law as well. And that is important to the argument that he is making here as it relates to what Christ has done, which is similar to Melchizedek, but better, right? Superior to Melchizedek. But still, there is uh, the language there seems to indicate that whatever Jesus, through his indestructible life and resurrection and ascension, did, it, it necessitates an actual change in the law as well. And what that is, I think he'll explain. But verse 13, it says, uh, for the one of whom these things are spoken, that's Jesus, uh, he belonged to another tribe, right? Judah, from which no one has ever served at the altar, right? It is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. So I, I didn't just make that up. And in connection with that tribe, Moses actually, in the law, right, said nothing about priests. God never gave Moses any instruction about someone who would be a high priest that would descend from Judah. The only real explicit prophecy Moses gives, I believe, is there will be a prophet that arises. Uh, I need to listen to him, right? So any thoughts, questions, connections um, to just verse, you know, in reading verse 12, 13, and, and 14 about Jesus and Judah and the law of Moses and the priests that were prescribed in the law? Because remember, if you're new to the faith and, you know, you're a new believer in the law, um, God prescribed and instructed that only those who descend directly from um, Aaron, who is a part of the tribe of Levi, only those who descend from him would be the actual high priest that um, get that sacred duty. And then Jesus arrives on the scene. And I don't think he blows those out of the water as if to say, like, Forget the law. That's the opposite of what he does. Um, but his priesthood is not established on the requirements of the law. It's not prescribed in the actual Torah and what Moses said about who could be high priest. It's very important because that, I guess, making sense of that relates to what it is for us to be in Christ now. There's something about Jesus establishing a better priesthood on the basis of his resurrection that actually gives us um, a clear understanding of what exactly it is that we we have now who we are and how we are to function so just be thinking about that these have massive implications on our identity our status and our life amanda only way go ahead so this may sound like a, a dumb question but um so when it says for when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. So what exactly in the law changes? And is this why we see, they say that the Pharisees added so many laws to the to the law, like 
they added their own laws. Is that where that comes from, or am I? I don't know. I think that's a good thought to bring up. I don't believe that's what it's saying necessarily. Is that um, extra traditional laws or commandments given by men were added to the Mosaic law? If anything, I'm learning a lot about the the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all these different sects within Judaism, um, S-E-C-T-S, to be clear, um, and how what they find their origin in. But I don't believe there's any any diminishment of the law here. Rather, it's there was a change necessarily because Jesus kind of, um, since resurrecting, there's a change in the priesthood. So what that means, um, it isn't explicitly clear. We could at least say that the law said, the Mosaic law, as given and instructed by God, said, if you want to be the high priest, that you don't attain that or achieve that, that law is given to you by your birth and descent from Aaron, right? You just fall into that. It's something God bestows on you and appoints you to be. So that at least is the change in law, you might say, that he's referring to. I don't know how much farther it goes beyond that. And I don't want to stretch the, this scripture farther than it's supposed to go. But it is a right. question you should ask, which is, well, does he only mean the law relating to the priesthood? Or are there implications on aspects of Torah as it relates to us in Christ now? Are there other dimensions of Torah and that um, that have in, in Christ now uh, adjusted or for the season of human history, and now that we're in Christ, and is that is that a possibility? And I think just by reading the rest of Hebrews, you should get a clearer answer. Um, but mm-hmm. as far as I can tell, there's no way to answer that quite yet, um, if that makes sense. It does. Yeah. That's the question, because that, that's what I was trying to get at, was someone would read this and then run with this all mm-hmm. the way all the way down the field, spike that ball and go touchdown, no more law. And I just don't think that's what the author is necessarily communicating. He's just saying Jesus is better than what law established. Because who did the law appoint? Men in weakness, humans with sinfulness and you know failures just like us. But the promise of God given to Abraham is different, in which is very similar. I think the and my mind is going everywhere because I'm reading Genesis right now. What Abraham and Sarah work for in the, by their own human cunning um, and produced through Abraham sleeping with Hagar, that was Ishmael. That he represents, uh, and the slave woman he belongs to represents that legalistic works-based mentality symbolized by Mount um, Sinai in, in Galatians. So there's all these rabbit trails we can, you can go down. The point is, there has always been a contrast between promise and human striving and scheming outside of God's will. And I think we're to, we're to think of those two children of Abraham, and we're supposed to think in this text, um, is Jesus um, being compared to the Levitical priesthood the same way that Ishmael is compared to Isaac? Being Isaac is from promise, Ishmael is the result of works. Are we supposed to see that in this text? And I think there might be a hint of it, yes. I do think so. Otherwise, Galatians, the whole passage about Ishmael and Isaac and and Hagar and, and Sarah, it doesn't make 
I don't know. It just wouldn't make much sense if we couldn't apply it here because there's obviously um, a statement about law and priesthood being made. And I just don't, I'm not comfortable to say how far we can take it just with this text. But if we keep reading, um, I think we'll find out. Um, Like verse 13, it talks about how um, no one has ever served at the altar, which you're supposed to think of priestly duties, all the different unique um, responsibilities God had appointed the Levitical priests to do. No one from Judah was, you know, instructed in Torah to do that. And yet Jesus comes on the scene and he's not doing that necessarily like at the temple and stuff, but he is now through his resurrection and ascension. It's as if um, he's taken over in, in a good way. Like the baton has been passed from however far the Levitical priest could, could take humanity. It's been passed to Jesus who takes us all the way. Um, in verse 15, it says, this becomes even more evident. And it's like, what becomes more evident? I guess just that Jesus is legitimately a high priest based on his resurrection. This becomes more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek. So um, what this is that becomes more evident, um, it seems as though it's referring to what verse 14 was said was evident. It's evident that Jesus descended from Judah. Moses said nothing about that. And then verse 16, he's become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement or demand concerning bodily descent, which I believe, again, you're supposed to see this um, contrast sort of between Ishmael, Isaac, right? Uh, the result of works versus what God promises being Isaac or physical circumcision versus spiritual circumcision, which God prescribed both, um, but one made way for the other. And I think you're supposed to see that here. Um, But Jesus is declared and appointed high priest on the basis of an indestructible life. Which high priest before Jesus had an indestructible life? The answer is none of them. Absolutely none of them. So apparently what God um, promised is better than what the law appointed. And that's, I think, okay to say, um, because that's how God set it up, is so that his son would take over and be exalted in that. It's not a diminishment of the law. What it, what it is, is to say that, no, the law actually has done its job in terms of prescribing who's the high priest to make way for Jesus, the ultimate. But it's like, hey, I can take it from here, buddy. Um, and again, I think people want to find excuse to not obey certain aspects of law. And so they'll run to these texts of scripture, which I don't believe if they're going to make that argument, they would use these passages. There might be other ones. Um, but this is just talking about the supremacy of Christ and his priesthood as it relates to what the law prescribes um, or in contrast with what the law points. So there's something about word and promise and oath that is very strongly contrasted with what um, regulations and appoint, even prescribed by God because he's ordained it to be inferior to what the promise would bring. And again, I don't think some of us are okay with saying that, but that is okay. Melchizedek, you're the guy to talk because you've got the name. Go ahead, brother. Um, 
time, I was just thinking uh, how, you know, Jesus is eternal, right? And he's always been our, our intercessor, even since, since, you know, Adam and Eve, he, uh, you know, gave him a chance. Well, I'm not going to dive into that rabbit hole, but so Jesus is eternal. So there's no more need for more priests because uh, the need for more priests than the Levi, uh, with Levi's is that they were carnal, they, they were blessed, they died. There was need to replenish a priest because the one dies, the other one replaces. But with Jesus being eternal, there's no need for one to die and replace because he's there forever. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I, and again, we don't want to get lost in the weeds. Like I'm, I'm probably dragging you guys through the weeds right now. But, um, the resurrection, the indestructible life of Jesus, his him being eternal. That's the point, is that plan A was always the promise. But to get to promise, there are things along the way God institutes to actually make way for promise to be realized. So the means that God has set up in the law at that time in human history through the Levitical priesthood, it's just his, the sovereign means he's used to bring about promise. And that's okay because you're going to see comparison between promise oath and um and command or in you know the legal requirement quite a bit and um we're just supposed to be honest about what it is the author is saying he's trying to make a big deal of um jesus's indestructible life who else has that no one no one does so verse 17 says it is witnessed of him Maybe uh, whoever wants to, go ahead and pull up um, Psalm 110, verse 4. I got you. Psalm 110, verse 4. Go ahead and pull that up. Don't read it quite yet, but get it ready. That is... Actually, somebody else pulled it up for you. All right. Thanks. That's one of the only other passages that will mention Melchizedek. Um, But before we read that, Drawing light as something. Um, so I noticed um, there's sort of like this idea that perhaps this was not so much abolished, but, but changed. But I mean, can we not look at it from the aspect of because the order of Melchizedek existed prior to uh, the tribe of Levites even coming into existence? Um is there at any point where God says he abolishes the order of Melchizedek? And so do not both still exist? That's sort of the question. Can he not be ordained by the order of Melchizedek because of the order of the Levites? Sorry, if you go first, yeah, that's a good question. Verse three says, and this is what I'm still wrestling with, like how far do we take this Lord? But it says resembling the son of God, Melchizedek continues a priest forever. Now that's either like in all reality, he legitimately, him and his priesthood still exist forever. He continues as a priest forever. Um, or it's more uh, analogous of what it is that is to be seen in Jesus's ministry and priesthood, which is, you know, the continuance of such, the unstoppableness of such. Like in some sense, if you were to metaphorically look at the Melchizedek priesthood, you'd go, well, 
I, I don't see any point in human history where that came to an end. So figuratively, it does continue forever. Mm-hmm. Or like, does he actually, like, does he actually, because we don't, he's so mysterious. And I think that's the point is the mysteriousness of Jesus right. and like the, the, the amount that we know him that is paralleled to the mysteriousness of Melchizedek. Like he comes on, he leaves. What do we know about him? We don't know nothing about him. Right. Who's his and daddy? No idea. So in some sense, he continues a priest forever because we can't establish any official end to what he did or even a, officiate with other scriptures what exactly he did as a high priest. So, or he actually does. And he's like, uh, you know, just like us, we're priests, a kingdom of priests in Christ. And in that sense, he's a part of what we're a part of. And so we all continue forever in the high priesthood of Jesus. So um, I think it's interesting that you bring that up. Because right, because, I, I mean, if, if you think about it like that, then if there was no abolishment, if, if God didn't say the order of Melchizedek can no longer be tapped into, it's almost the difference between carnal and spirit. Right. So you have the Levites, according to like the, the fleshly priests that could not do the perfect job that Jesus did. And then the order of Melchizedek, this mysterious person, which remains forever, you know, so. Yeah. And that's why I, I, I like to just kind of stop with you guys and say, hey, rather than assume we know what this means, you know, what does it mean that he continues forever? Um, what does it mean? contextually throughout Hebrews for something to continue forever. Have we seen any glimpse of that? And of course, Jesus in his priesthood. Um, but is Jesus are we supposed to see Jesus as going farther than Melchizedek or on par with Melchizedek? Um, I think at least we're supposed to see him and the priesthood of Melchizedek similarly. Um, but I would venture to say he is supposed to be viewed as superior and farther um, almost like if you were to look at the rankings of priesthood, the power rankings, it'd be in third place. We got the Levitical priesthood in second place. We got Melchizedek's priest in first place, our champion for the three millionth year in a row, Jesus, you know? So, um, not that we need to create these, un- in my opinion, unnecessary, um, distinctions, but it is helpful to to know that Jesus, in all ways and regards, is just to be viewed as superior, and we don't want to let that kind of fall to the wayside as we're like, "Who's Melchizedek? What he do?" Jesus is superior to everyone in every way, and that's awesome. It was enough for the Father to ordain it, and I think that's good enough for us too, or at least it should be. That's right. So I told someone to pull up Psalm one ten four. Uh, we could read that whole chapter. And in fact, I'd actually spend next week just going through that chapter in Psalms because um, what surrounds that statement, and I'll take you to Psalm 110 real quick just to uh, give you a taste of what to expect next week. I just decided this on the spot. Psalm 110 verse 4. It says, The Lord has sworn, again referring to oath and promise, he will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And then we have all these different passages that Jesus himself will quote from. Um, when he talks to the Pharisees, he says, you know, why does David say the Lord says to my Lord? That's in verse one of Psalm 110. 
or in verse 5, the New Testament authors really like this one. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. So I think it'd be really cool for us to go through Psalm 110 next week. Um, because whatever point the author of Hebrews is making with that verse, if you really want to get it, you got to see what it's couched between. Um, so for instance, in Psalm 110, you have all these different ideas colliding in this one who is appointed by the Father as a priest. You know, you have um, the Lord sitting at his right hand. You see the enemies of this king being made his footstool. You see Jerusalem, kind of the central focus and what proceeds from Zion. You see um, the judgment that comes on the nations and the kings, the rebellious kings of the earth being shattered in the wrath of God. And that's connected to Jesus at the right. So all these ideas, if we're to like really understand the point being made in Hebrews 7 or 17, we got to catch these main ideas in Psalm 110. So that's probably where we'll park it tonight as much as I want to get farther. Um, we made it through what? Six verses. High five someone. High five a stranger. That's worth celebrating. Um, so that's where we'll end this evening. We'll pick it up in Psalm 110 next week. So Cindy, you take note because I'm going to forget in the next two minutes. Even if I write it down, it'll get piled under notes. Um, you keep me accountable. <laughs> so that's all I got for you guys. Does anyone else have a hand up or questions before we close? want to make sure we adequately answer well as best as we can and where did we leave off in hebrews which verse 15 technically verse 17 is where we'll pick it up i want to read that again and then we'll jump into psalm 110 aye aye thank you thank you if no questions uh, or statements to make we will close in prayer someone can jump on and pray for our time. Seal this up in uh, surrender to God. Does anyone want to pray for our time? Close it up. Father, thank you for your word and the truth of it and how you reveal yourself. Because you are a God who wants to be known and remembered. And Lord, all these little intricacies, these things are just beautiful ways that we can get to know you. So we thank you for this time. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would continue to speak to our hearts continue to real, reveal things to us as we dig into it, we look into it on our own, and that you would just be the, the guide. You would be the helper that guides us in all truth and understanding and reminds us of the words of Jesus. So we thank you for this time together as a family and for the truth of your word and how your word is life to us, and that you are a priest over the order or under the order of Melchizedek. You are our our uh, king of righteousness. So we bless you, we honor you, and we thank you for this word and this time together. Amen.